Have you ever noticed uh, how when we are, we oftentimes will interpret God to be faithful, to be good, and to be interested in us when things are going well. But when things aren't going so well, we really struggle with believing in the goodness of God. Just think about it. When, when, when things are going you know, good, when we, we, we can easily go there and say, God, you're good, you're faithful, you're, you're, you care, I know you love me, you got all the, you, you know that stuff when things are going well. But when things are difficult, when things are hard, and it's le- our faith or our ability to interpret God is left up to our ability to interpret accurately the things of this life, oftentimes we are left, when things are difficult, we are left thinking, where's God? Does he even care? Is he even interested? And so over the last four weeks, we've been talking about what is faith? How do we, how do we know the difference between faith and hope? We talked about that. We talked about, well, faith is really believing that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he's promised to do. We talked about, well, what are the promises of God and what aren't? And then last week, we looked at what happens when you pray and you pray and you pray and God tells you no. What does faith look like in those moments? And so today and next week, they're going to be really, really important. We're going to look at some, we're going to look at a couple passages that have caused all kinds of confusion for people for years, that there are these couple passages that, that seem like, I mean, if you just, if you don't have any context, if you don't have any background, any history to be able to understand these passages, it would be so easy, and this is where people get tripped up, to read these passages and just assume that I can ask and pray in faith and God then has to give me everything that I've asked for. And so the big question is, Is that true? If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And this morning, uh, it's going to involve a little interaction from you. So there's going to be times where I'm going to ask you, and it's not rhetorical. You're going to have to actually engage, okay? So I want to give you that heads up. But before we get to Matthew 7, I want to just lay a little bit of groundwork and give you some broad context. See, when, when Jesus was on this earth, he was, he was primarily speaking to an audience whose name was Israel or the Jewish people. They were highly intelligent, very religious, and had a very well-developed understanding of faith. Jesus was speaking to a group of people whose history and whose culture had a very faith orientation, especially as it related to faith in God. Now, 
What you're going to find interesting in scripture, and we're going to even look a little bit more at this next week, is that all of a sudden we see this shift in the language in the New Testament. We, we see this shift in the language regarding specifically faith. There's a shift when we, what we hear Jesus talking about in the gospels to where all of a sudden, then when we get to the epistles. So when Jesus was on the earth, we see this specific kind of language that he used in the gospels. And then when we get to the epistles, it's after Jesus has gone. And when you see Jesus speaking about faith, and then all of a sudden you have Peter and Paul talking about faith, there seems to be some differences. But, the, but what's important for you to understand was Jesus was speaking to a group of people that understood what real faith was because it was naturally a part of their culture and their history. But the apostles were talking to a mostly Greek culture who had a very different perspective on faith. And so the apostles would begin to put some qualifying comments or statements around some of the things that Jesus said. They never disagreed with Jesus, just so we're clear on that. They never disagreed with Jesus, but they knew their audience wasn't as informed as the Jewish audience. And so because they didn't have the same background or culture. So let me just give you two big important things that you need to understand how, how the Jews would have perceived faith and why this is so important to the passage we're going to look at today. The first thing is that the Jewish people were in a covenant relationship with God. The Jewish people were in a covenant relationship with God. A covenant relationship was where they would make an agreement with God and some of their agreements were unconditional and some of them were conditional. God said, okay, Jewish nation, I'll do certain things if you do certain things. I'll give you certain blessings if you obey me in certain ways. That was the conditional kind of covenant relationship. The unconditional covenant relationship was, I'm going to do this whether you do this or deserve it at all. God's saying, I'm going to make this, you're, you're going to be in this land, this promised land, it's going to be yours. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, I'm just going to do it because I'm God. That, that would be a unconditional covenant. Another unconditional covenant, I'm going to send you a deliverer, a Messiah, a savior, and there's nothing you did to deserve it. There's nothing you did to earn it. I'm just going to do it out of the goodness and kindness and the love of my heart, God's saying this, and it's actually going to come through the line of David. Again, David didn't earn it. If anything, David deserved to it for it to be taken away from adultery and then murder and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't because he was such a good person. God had made a covenant promise. And so I share all that to say those are things the average Jewish man or woman, as they think about faith, it was based clearly on what God had promised through the covenant that he had set up with them. They knew exactly what to expect from God. It was clearly written out. It was clearly lined out. All they had to do was read the law. All they had to read, you know, they could go back and read Deuteronomy. It was there. It's clearly spelled out. And so the Jews expected from God exactly what God had promised. And so then they acted in faith when they upheld their end of the covenant. That's God's promise. Okay. The second thing, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to get to it to where you actually feel like this is interesting. The second thing is Old Testament. This is so huge. Old Testament faith is always a response 
to God's initiation. I want, I really, this is so important for us to get. Old Testament faith is always a response to God's initiative or God's initiation or God's revelation. So faith in the Old Testament, there is not a single exception. You always want to, you always, that always needs to perk your ears. There's not a single exception where faith is always a response to God's initiation. So you're wondering, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Faith in the Old Testament was always a response to something God said, something God did, or something God promised. Faith was always a response to something God said, something God did, or something God promised. Faith was never the initiator. Faith was never the initiator. God initiates something, he reveals something, and then people would respond in faith, right? That's the pattern of the Old Testament. Think of it, that, that you see it all the way from Noah all the way through the end through Nehemiah, right? You see, and, and again, because it's, we, we don't, the Bible's not written in chronological order. So, so again, we see this all throughout the entire Old Testament. God says to Noah, Noah, it's going to rain. It's going to flood. You need to build a boat. Noah responded in faith. God initiated, Noah didn't have anything. He'd never even seen it rain before. He didn't have any evidence to go on. It's not like he was sitting there coming up. You know what? I think a good, God, would you give me the ability to build an ark, right? No, no, no. God says, Noah, this is going to happen. A flood's gonna come. I'm gonna wipe out the earth. I want you to, and Noah responded, God initiated. Noah responded in faith. God gives revelation. And then we respond with appropriate action. 100% of the time, we see that in the Old Testament. Now, if you were to take an exhaustive concordance, which is one of those big, huge, heavy books. Now, thankfully, we have Bible software, so I have it all on a computer. But they, they're like Strong's Concordance, like this massive thing. It has every word in the Bible. And every time it's used in the Bible and how it's used, in the Bible. So if you were to take that Strong's Concordance and you were to look up the word for faith every time it appears in the Old Testament, let's look at this. Guess how many times the word faith appears as a noun in the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, 39 books. Guess how many? Guess how many times? Four. Four times as a noun. Guess how many times it's used as a verb? a whole ton. See, there are in all of the Old Testament, only four times is the word tr uh, faith used as a noun. Now, it can be translated believe, trust, follow, submit, but there's not a consistent Hebrew word for faith. There's a consistent, we have a Greek word for faith. We have an English word for faith, but there's not a consistent word translated for faith that's a noun. And I know you're thinking, I know you're thinking, wow, this is so amazing. I'm so glad we fought with our kids to get to church so I could have this grammar lesson, right? I know you're welcome. I know you're super excited about it. But here's why, here's my point. This is why this is so important. I really am. I want you to get this. Faith for the Old Testament believer was never something that you would sit around and talk about. 
It was never something that you would, because it wasn't a noun. It was a verb. It's something you did. Listen to me. Faith involves action based upon something God did, said, or promised. See, this is so different than the way our American culture or many other cultures think as we think about faith. Just, just, just track with me here. Here's how we think about it. I have a need. I have a request. I have a desire. So I'm going to pray, initiate. I'm going to pray in faith and hope God responds to my initiation. That's not biblical faith. God is always the initiator. We are always the responders. Significant difference. See, we often get it in our heads that I am praying and I am, I'm praying in faith and I'm trying to get God to answer my prayers. That's not biblical faith. God, every single time, is the initiator and we are the responders. But you're saying, well, that's the Old Testament. No, 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 it's never changed. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in present day. Faith doesn't initiate. Faith only responds. Does that make sense? See, but if we're honest, we often think that faith is the key. It's like the code that unlocks the power of God, right? That, you know, if I can just show God that I have enough faith, if I can just impress God, you know, with, a, with enough faith, then maybe God will bless me. Maybe God will heal me. Maybe God will, you know, grant me. Maybe God will bring me, you know, whatever it is. If I can just have enough faith, if I can just have enough confidence in my faith, that God will then do what I'm hoping he will do. See, faith is our action. Faith is our action that brings our hearts into alignment with God's purpose, with his plans and his power. It's not about trying to get God in on our deal. It's about really aligning our heart with his deal, with his plans, with his purposes. In fact, I want to I want to just before I get to Matthew 7, I want to show you a passage of scripture. We'll probably just put it up on the screen in a moment. Uh, but 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 let me give you some context. The remember the Old Testament and uh, and and Moses is leading the people uh, out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea and all of a sudden they have the Red Sea in front of them and they've got the the army, the Egyptians with Pharaoh coming up behind them and the people are whining, complaining. We all, we we should have stayed in slavery. It's miserable and all this other stuff, right? And all of a sudden God says to raise his staff and to lift his arm and and, and he said that, you know, and then the sea is gonna be parted. And so Moses responded in faith. And he did it. And what happens? The sea opens up. They, the million Israelites go through on dry land, which is crazy in and of itself, gets all the way through the water, you know, gets back. The waters closed down, crush the army. And again, the people celebrated. But here's my question. Here's my question. Did Moses part the sea or did God part the sea? Come on. Who is it? Yeah. But Moses acted in faith, but God's the one 
that parted the sea. Just, just check out this verse. Exodus chapter 14, verses uh, 31. Just verse 31. It says, and when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared. I mean, that word literally means revere, respect. Not this type of thing, because you can't trust somebody that you're doing this with, right? It means a revering, a respect. So the people respected the Lord, revered the Lord, feared the Lord, and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And here's what you're going to see all throughout the Bible. You're going to see this, that you'll find these two ideas paralleled, fear and respect of the Lord, trust in the Lord. Fear and respect of the Lord, trust in the Lord. See, when you fear the Lord, when you trust the Lord, when you, when you respect and revere the Lord and his power, you're going to trust him. And this is the kind of faith that Jesus's audience understood. They're going, wow, God is so big. He's so powerful. He's so amazing. I'm not. I'm going to put my trust in him. Faith is always a response. It's a surrender. It's an obedience to the power and revelation of God and nothing has changed. So now we're going to get to these two passages that really trip up people significantly. Matthew chapter seven. And here's, here's, here's what we're going to look at. You can go ahead and drop down to verse seven. It's a great promise that you should cling to. But unfortunately, a lot of folks have misunderstood what this passage and what Jesus was talking about. Look at this. He says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. That's pretty good. He who seeks finds. That's great. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Now, just on the surface, it looks like God is giving us his visa card with an unlimited balance. I mean, just think how good. This is what preachers will preach. Like you just ask in faith and God will give it to you if you want this and you want that, right? And all people are like, oh, okay. You've only had to be a Christian for a little bit of time to realize that doesn't work. And then people, guess what? Then they tell, they're told, well, you just must not have enough faith. You must just not have enough faith. So Jesus goes on to explain what he means by giving us an illustration. Verse nine, he says, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil or sinners, in other words, you're not perfect like God, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give, what's it say? Okay, you guys are hopefully not sleeping. What does he say? You're going to give what? Yeah, good gifts to those who ask them. Jesus's point is God is not going to give you everything you ask for. 
God is not going to give you everything you ask for. What Jesus' point was is that God is going to give you everything that's good for you based upon what God thinks is good for you because he's a good father. See, God is so good and he's so smart and he's so wise and he's so merciful. He knows not to give you and I everything we ask for. He just knows that. You can ask, you can seek, you can knock as long, you can wear yourself out. And he says, bring all the requests to me. Don't hold back. And we're gonna get, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna get to, so then why pray? Like, we're going to get to that. But I'm telling you, he says, seek, ask. Now, you can bring all of that stuff to me. And these are some of my words. I don't, believe, I don't care how much you might believe. I don't care how much you might pester. Because God is such a good heavenly father, to answer some of our prayer requests, it would actually violate his character. And he won't do it. And Jesus' point is just as, and I know for some of you, you did not have a good earthly father, and so I know it makes it difficult at times. So remove that image. But any good, earthly, sinful, but earthly father is committed to giving their kids the best they can. He's saying, how much more is your perfect heavenly father going to give good gifts to his children who ask. I mean, think about it. How, just raise your hand if this has happened. How many of you have ever been to Toys R Us? I know they kind of went out of business for a while and they kind of come back and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of you, all right? So you've seen the phenomenon, right? Where I'm just telling you, there are parents, there are parents who made a very unwise decision and chose to take their children with them into this store. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or like me, who has the joy, because now my kids are all older, I get to watch them as they struggle and wrestle with this whole thing that goes on. Because here's what happens. A dad comes in, He's got his little daughter, sits her in the little front seat. And all of us, you know, because, you know, it's probably best to put her there versus walking and grabbing and touching everything. So he sits her up there and it starts aisle one, aisle one. It starts, daddy, please, 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 please. I want, I want, right? And, and all of a sudden you see the interaction and the dad starts off strong. I mean, he's, he's got good strength in the beginning, right? And he's like, no, honey, no, I already told you, no, you've already got one of those or no, because you know he, somebody else is already going to be getting that for her birthday. You already know. So you're saying no, no. And she gets louder and she's persistent. But daddy, please. And the tears start flowing and your heart as a dad is dying because you want to bless your child, but yet you've got to stay strong. And again, just this goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually he wear, she wears him down to where he finally says, fine, and gives her the gift. And in that moment, are you thinking, wow, what a good dad. No, you know what I'm thinking? Bro, hang in there. You're in aisle one. 
You've got like six, eight more aisles to go, man. You're going to have a basket full of toys because you've already been worn down so much. You just wanted her to stop. You finally just gave in to her request because you didn't want to hear her continue to pester you any longer. Now, a good father doesn't mean that you don't give your child a gift from Toys R Us. Here's my point. Just because you pester me and just because you might continue to come and your volume gets louder and louder, I don't make decisions on what's best for you if my child based upon your persistence and your volume. I will make the best decision for you as my child based upon, in light of wisdom, maturity, and timing. And your heavenly father is going to do that perfectly for you. And we can ask, we can seek, and we can knock, but your heavenly father is committed to doing what's best for you. And sometimes that might mean no to what we are asking for. Why? Because he is good and he knows what's best. A number of years ago, uh, I was talking to a young man who was sharing a story of his friend who, uh, when he was a teenager, and he shared about how uh, this, his friend of his, uh, all his buddies had motorcycles. They all loved them. They all ran together. But his dad would never get him one. And he would ask his dad, and he would ask his dad, and he would ask his dad. His dad would always say no. And it just constantly kept up over, because here's the reason why. His dad knew his son did not have the maturity to handle that kind of a machine. But over time, he felt so guilty and so tired of being asked. He said, fine, if you wanna do this, go ahead. And he gave him permission. No joke. The same day he bought the motorcycle, his son went out riding with his friends, got in an accident. And again, he, he was in the hospital for a long period of time, but he was injured so badly, he was impaired for the rest of his life. And here's what the young man told me. And of course, as you can imagine, as any father would, then you feel guilty, you feel devastated, you know, I shouldn't have done that, all that kind of stuff. And here's what the young man said. He goes, even though I wouldn't like it, I sure hope my dad would make a better decision for me than that. And here's, here's the point of what Jesus is trying to drive home. Your heavenly father is smarter and wiser than that. That you can rest assured, you can go to bed at night and you can ask and you can ask and you can ask and you can sleep with peace knowing that your heavenly father is going to give you what is best, even if you don't like it. I want to jump over to, flip over to Mark chapter 11 real quick. We've got a few more minutes left. I want to try, to try to do the best I can to make this. This is probably the most difficult one, so I want you to pay attention. It's not because it's the most difficult to understand, but it's probably the, the, the one passage that is most misused to propagate a name it, claim it type of presentation of the gospel or a prosperity gospel. 
uh, which again, we would not hold to whatsoever. And so let me give you a little bit of bra- background as you're turning to Mark 11. Uh, Jesus, this, and again, the, the background is really important. Jesus has just left the town of Bethany. He's heading to Jerusalem with his disciples. Bethany is, is located at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. And so in fact, if you've ever been over to Israel, you'll know this, there's lots of hills. It's a very rocky area, but it's really primarily just this one mountain and it's the Mount of Olives. And so he's leaving Bethany on his way to Jerusalem and he's hungry and he sees a fig tree and he goes over to the fig tree that has no figs on it. So Jesus curses the fig tree, says, hey, you will not produce any more figs, which again, sounds super weird. Like you don't ever really see Jesus saying, hey, I'm the son of God. I can wield my power however I want to. And so it just seems kind of out of the sorts. But again, you know, we know that Jesus did everything with a purpose. And so we're going to get to that. But after he curses the fig tree, that it would have no more fruit, they go on their way. They head to Jerusalem. They do some stuff there. And then they're heading back to Bethany. And I want you to listen to what happens. Mark chapter 11, verse 20. It says, in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Jesus, he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now look at Jesus's response. Have faith in God. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those classic times. I'm just telling you, if I'm one of the disciples in that moment, that I'm like, what does faith have to do with the fig tree withering? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And again, the question, what does faith have to do with a fig tree dying, really unlocks the truth of this wonderful passage that gets so distorted. We'll come back to it in a minute. Verse 23, I tell you the truth, if anyone, and I wish I had time to explain why this is so important, but I don't. If anyone says to this mountain, what's the mountain? What did I say it was? Do you remember? Yeah, good. Mount of Olives. It doesn't say it, but it's the only one that's right in front of them. So he's saying this mountain, he's talking about the Mount of Olives. Go, if you say to this, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. He says, therefore, this is why I wish I could explain verse 23 more. It says, I tell you, not anyone, but now I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And again, it sounds like, man, God's given me the black, he's got, I've got American Express. I can sweep that thing wherever I want. Get ass knock. If I just believe and I like, I can move mountains. I mean, that sounds, that sounds like what, he, what Jesus is saying. And this is where we get so confused by preachers because they will tell you if it didn't happen, you didn't really, 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 really believe. You must have not had heart faith. You must have only had head faith. What the heck is that, by the way? (laughs) Like you better like really believe. Notice how the verse starts off. It doesn't say, look at this. It does not say, have faith in your faith. Super important. It says, have faith in who? 
Absolutely. Let me tell you what else it says. It says, have faith in God. And then it says, and if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it will be done for you. He starts off by saying, have faith in God. And then he says, it will be done for you. So let me ask you, who's doing the doing? Your faith or God? Huge deal. Huge deal. Your faith isn't moving the mountain. God is moving the mountain. So let me ask you, when, when, what would it take for you to genuinely believe, like you were standing at the, I've been there, for you to stand right at the Mount of Olives and for you to conjure up enough belief, trust, and faith in God and you pray with all confidence, God, I want you to, you know, I'm gonna impress everybody, I'm gonna impress you, I'm gonna show you so much faith that I, my faith is going to move this mountain off this foundation and it, like, like what would it take for you to have that kind of confidence. I'll just tell you for me, it would literally take God himself speaking in an audible voice where it was so crystal clear for me to have that kind of confidence. And that's exactly the point of what Jesus is getting at. Unless God tells you, unless God shows you, unless God has given you a promise in that, then you can have hope, but you can't have faith in something that's not a promise. Remember, remember the context from what I shared earlier. It's what the Jews already knew and we miss it. Our faith is not the initiator. I don't pray in faith and then God moves a mountain. No, no, no. God initiates and we respond in faith. We always, our faith always responds to God's initiation. And that is why Jesus begins this whole narrative by saying, have faith in God. In other words, you know what he's saying? He said, if you think the fig tree thing's a big deal, you haven't seen anything yet. If you think this little fig tree and saying, hey, you're, you're not gonna produce any more figs. If you think like that's a big deal, I'm just telling you, get ready, get ready. Let me tell you another reason why this verse can't be talking about what all these other, uh, you know, prosperity gospel preachers will talk about. Here's why. If you were to turn back to the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14, you go read it yourself. It says, when Jesus come back, it's talking about when the, when the son of man, when, 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 when the Messiah comes back. So when Jesus returns, I'm going to tell you where he's going to be because scripture already tells us. He says, he's going to come down and stand on the Mount of Olives. And then he's going to split them in two and send them in different directions. I don't know, maybe at that point they go into a sea, but I'm just telling you, the re you, you can go today, get on a plane, you can fly to Israel, stand there with as many faithful, God-honoring, Jesus-loving people as you want, and you all pray in your faith and that mountain's not moving. You know why? Because we have a promise from scripture that it's gonna be there when Jesus returns. Amen. See, our faith doesn't move mountains. It's our God who moves mountains. Do you believe that? Amen. See, and again, we have a tendency to miss this. This is where I'm gonna kind of head next week. Jesus never did anything on his own volition. He says, I only do what, I, what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. So think about it. 
The reason Jesus healed certain people was because the Father told him to heal certain people. When he went to the cross, it's because the Father told him to go to the cross. The reason Jesus cursed the fig tree was because the Father told him to curse the fig tree. And again, he's saying, if you think killing the fig tree is a big deal, and again, Jesus' whole thing was, I'm preparing you, I'm preparing you for what's coming. So don't miss this, I've already said it, but I'm gonna say it again, this is your takeaway. It is not our faith that moves mountains. It is our God who moves fountains, mountains, and my faith is in him and his promises. Is that clear? Our faith doesn't move the mountain. Our God moves the mountain, and my faith is in the one who's promised it. So let me ask you, and then I'm gonna close. What's your mountain today? I don't, I don't know what your mountain is. Could be a marriage. Could be your kids. Could be that you want kids and can't have kids. Could be your finances. Could be your health. Could be a job. Could be school. Could be family issues. But let me say this. My encouragement to you is for you to take your request, for you to ask, for you to seek, for you to knock, for you to take that stuff to your loving heavenly father and trust that he will do what is best for you. Do you hear me? That he will do what is best for you and your heart posture has to be not my will as we talked last week, but yours be done. Lord, I'm gonna take this to you, why? Because you're a good father. I'm gonna trust you, why? Because you promised me that you'll only give me what is best for me and I can have confidence because you've been a God who has always kept his promises. Do you believe that? He will do it over and over again. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I, my hope is that we've given a little bit more clarity on where people have gotten super confused and very distorted belief system. Lord, that, that you would help us be able to come to you with confidence that we can ask, we can seek, we can knock we can have confidence that you are a God who moves mountains, but also be reminded that I don't conjure up enough belief or confidence to try to get you to do something on my behalf, that you will always do what's best. And Lord, as we look from the beginning all the way through the end of scripture, we see you doing it over and over and over again. We see it with Noah. We see it with Joseph. We see it with Abraham. We see it with Nehemiah. We see it with David. We see it over and over again. We see it with the walls of Jericho. We see it, we just, it's, you just keep doing it and keep doing it. You are so faithful. But Lord, the problem is in my little world, in my little situation, in my mountain that seems overwhelming, I begin to question whether you're gonna do it again. So God, in these moments, my hope and my prayer for us is that we would be reminded today, you're a good, perfect, heavenly Father who will always do 
what is best. And if you did it before, you'll continue to do it again. God, we love you. We thank you so much in Jesus' name, amen.